0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, March 8th, 2023. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Uh, Washington Commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute senior fellow, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. And Matt's colleague at the American Enterprise Institute and our media commentary columnist, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. So Joe Biden has an op-ed in the New York Times laying out his proposal to save Medicare. And I think it's really nice of the New York Times to print what you might call a campaign ad for Biden in the guise of a of an op-ed, because he is uh, issuing a proposal that has no chance— of passage uh, and half the piece is just a sort of series of slanders against the Republican party and like, uh, you know, de- deliberate untruths about the MAGA Republicans who want to do this and want to do that and want to enrich Big Pharma, blah, 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 blah. So uh, aside from the, uh, the moral hazard in in essentially turning your column over to a to a campaign ad as opposed to an actual legislative proposal that might garner support and passage uh you know in the house um the substance of Biden's plan uh indicates that the democrats and Biden under democrats under Biden are now just going all in on a tax the rich message which of course has always been an element of the democratic party's populist approach but um this kind of indicates this is essentially where the race is going to be in 2024 they're going to talk about increasing taxes and t- dare republicans to talk about taxes in a different way and about entitlements and he knows that the republican party is now very divided on what to do about entitlements
1: uh matt what do you uh what do you make of it well, uh, a few things. I mean, uh the first uh is that typically presidents go to uh USA Today when they want to uh you know unveil a big proposal and uh USA Today pr- prints the um uh the column as you say uh which borders on uh campaign literature. So it is it's kind of surprising to see it in the New York Times. I hadn't thought of that until your your description. Um the second thing is, uh, this is, I think, uh, you know, what Mark Halperin calls, uh, Biden's triangulation light strategy at work, uh, during the 1990s when Bill Clinton was, uh, triangulating, uh, against the congressional Republicans, uh, he, um, tacked right on crime, on welfare, on, um, kind of small bore issues like, uh, school uniforms, uh, while, uh, basically protecting core, uh, democratic priorities. And the the acronym was M two E two. So, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, education, and the environment. And it seems like, like Biden is, uh, basically pursuing the same strategy, uh, with this, uh, Medicare plan. Finally, the, um, the, the irony of all this is we we're, we're flipping from, uh, Republicans talking about entitlements during the Tea Party era and Democrats talking about uh, all the great programs they want to launch um, to now a period where Democrats are going to be the ones talking about entitlements and talking about how they're protecting entitlements and how uh, they're going to shore up uh, programs like Medicare and Social Security basically through uh, tax increases and republicans are going to put all the focus on uh programs discretionary spending the part of the budget that congress controls and that the house republicans are focusing on as they come up with a budget of their own so once again as part of this um realignment or partial realignment of the parties, they've essentially switched places where it's now uh, Republicans want to avoid the subject of entitlements and talk about how they're going to slash all the discretionary programs instead. Um, And uh, Democrats are going to basically keep um, uh, portraying themselves as the sustainers of the entitlement state.
2: Well, it's also I, I was we talked about this on our on our group chat, but there uh, and John, I think you pointed this out. One of the interesting things about Biden, uh, Biden's plan is that obviously it will the tax increase is not going to be just what what Democrats like to claim, which is they're only going to tax those terrible billionaires. It's the billionaires we're after people. Well, in fact, it's anyone who any household that earns four hundred thousand dollars or above. So that's wealthy, but that's not billionaire wealthy. So it it was they're going to actually have to. And that's what they claim they're going to tax. Usually when these sorts of things have to start to be paid for, you'll see hits far below the four hundred thousand dollar mark. It's interesting that the same uh, same day that his op-ed comes out, Nikki Haley, candidate on the Republican side, for the presidency has a has a an op-ed that's it's very sensible. It's like out of spend out of control spending's happening. It's we have both sides to blame. She's correct. She talks about what she would do to, to control that spending. Um, but I don't think her voice is gonna be heard in this debate. I think I think Matt's right that, that the Republicans don't have any incentive to talk about reforming any of these programs that need to be reformed. The main reason that that Biden's doing this whole thing now is is political. They're gonna respond politically as well. Um, We don't have the money to support these programs anymore, but nobody wants to reform them. So I feel a little bad for Nikki Haley's earnest op-ed, which I think was in the Detroit Free Press, not the New York Times. Um, But she's right. I mean, the the spending issues are on the Republican side as well. Uh, There was a lot of misspending during COVID. There was a lot of fraud that occurred uh, with COVID spending. Um, These are the sorts of things that uh, serious politicians should be examining. But I didn't take Joe Biden's uh, op-ed as anything other than just rank politics
3: well what biden's doing here rhetorically is very very safe um mm. it's very safe to go after supposed billionaires and billionaires um and it's he's he's sort of um rebounding back to 2020 campaign biden right um beginning to kind of drift away from the twitter the twitter left right um, and that's why they're freaking out on them.
0: Well, okay, so let let let's let, let's delve into this uh, supposed proposal because the op-ed has some real Goldberg qualities to it, in which it 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 um it sort of blows its own logic up. But here here here's the central proposal: my budget proposes to increase the Medicare tax rate on earned and unearned income above four hundred thousand dollars. That is, all income that is not salary. Uh, salary is not included here, but all income that is not salary, to 5% from 3.8%. Now, remember, if you're trying to figure out what a tax increase is, that is not a tax increase of 1.2%. That is a tax increase of 30%. uh, Since if the base is 3.8 and the increase is to 5, that's 1.2%. That's Thirty, a thirty percent increase. Um, it's so he sees. First, he sort of throws this in as though it's not much; it's just a percentage point higher, right? But it's actually a thirty percent increase. Uh, second, he says, uh, "Republican plans that protect billionaires from a penny more in taxes, but won't protect a retired firefighter's hard-earned Medicare benefits, are just detached from the reality that hardworking families." live with every day. So, so suddenly now a billionaire a, a, a tax increase on people over 400,000 is now a tax increase exclusively on billionaires. There's an there's a big that's a big yada yada yada, right? It's a big ellipsis uh from uh you know, income over $400,000 to billionaires income. Okay, that's that's number 1. Number 2 is this passage because this is where the rubber meets the road. Here's what he says. And I think these numbers are a little tanky. In 2009, before the, uh, before the um, Affordable Care Act, the Medicare trustees projected that Medicare's trust fund would be exhausted in 2017. Their latest projection is 2028. But we should do better than that and extend Medicare solvency beyond 2050. Okay. We should do better than that? 2020 is five years from now. What do you mean we should do better than that? He's he's announcing that we're at the cliff. Like there there's no there's no saving us from going over this cliff and by the way the the amount of money that would be raised by this increase in the tax on earned and unearned income isn't going to get anywhere near ex- filling up the exhausted trust fund 5 years from now. What we're facing if this these numbers are right, is we're going to go into 2027 and then, yeah, there are going to be some tax increases. And you know where they're going to be? On everybody, everywhere. Because the amount of money that's going to have to be raised in order to replenish the Medicare trust fund, which doesn't exist anyway, by the way, we should stipulate that's a giant box of IOUs and a lockbox. There is no money in there. That's where, why we have this federal debt that's growing by leaps and bounds. Um, we're going to see tax increases the likes of which we haven't seen since World War II, basically. I mean, in order to deal with this crisis. So he's, you know what? It's great. We're going to, I'm going to do this, and then that's going to save us till 2050. And then lo and behold, maybe he'll be president in 2027. Maybe somebody else will be president in 2027. Maybe it'll buy a year maybe two, though I doubt it, we are heading over the cliff.
1: Well, and of course, none of it's going to happen. I mean, that's yeah, well, that's whatever, whatever we reach.
0: So so he's establishing a predicate where he can say, look, I said in 2023, we should pass this modest tax increase on people making over four hundred thousand dollars and earned an unearned income. And uh, the Republicans said no. I mean, so it's bu- all
1: their fault. Budget week is always kind of uh, a shadow play, you know, because uh, when presidents release these annual budgets, no one has any expectation that they are going to actually resemble uh, the money Congress uh, appropriates in the end. Um and if that's especially true when we are in a period of divided government, uh, such as now, when um, the Republican House is not going to do anything Biden wants, and that essentially stops his legislative agenda cold. I do think it's worth pointing out, though, that you know, this New York Times op-ed we're discussing is about Biden's Medicare plan. That is not the only set of tax increases he's going to include in this budget. And in fact, the budget, when he unveils it tomorrow, I think he's going to Pennsylvania to talk about it, um, is a, re- a rehash of many other proposals um, he's had uh, uh, he's put forward in the past. Uh, this is a New York, another New York Times story today. Uh, Mr. Biden is expected to announce a new tax on American households worth more than $100 million that would apply to both their earned income and the unrealized gains in the value of their liquid assets like stocks. This is essentially the Elizabeth Warren wealth tax. It's a horrible idea. It's been implemented in several uh, European um, uh, countries, and it does not raise the revenue necessary and it's also and just was, a,
0: and it's been repealed it's it was, repealed it was, right because it's been so I, yeah.
1: unsuccessful yeah um and mr biden the times goes on will also call for the quadrupling the quadrupling of the tax on stock buybacks that was approved as part of the sweeping tax health and climate bill he signed last year that's the so-called inflation reduction act so uh the, essentially biden's response to all of these budgetary concerns is to raise taxes on the you know on the quote unquote wealthy or the super wealthy um and the not only is it a a kind of a impotent gesture since it won't happen it's also Unrealistic, Because as Christine was saying, even if you were to impose all these tax increases, you would still not generate the revenue necessary to fund the American welfare state. The only way to do that is through a broad-based middle-class tax increase, like a value-added tax, which neither party uh, is willing to accept. Um, You know,
0: this also comes at an interesting time because the Tax Foundation came out with this study that it does almost every year, I think, um, of... Uh, who pays the most? Who pays into the federal government? And uh, and despite all this talk about how the wealthy don't pay, they pay their fair share, the top five percent of taxpayers in the United States pay sixty three percent of all the taxes paid into the federal government. Let let let, let me repeat that: five, the top five percent pay sixty three percent. The top one percent pay fifty percent. So can that number go up? Sure. Sure. It can. I mean, they can, they can figure out to raise it if they can, the way it goes up naturally and if, as it has gone up is by the wealth, wealthy getting wealthier, which apparently is evil because then they make more money and then they pay more in taxes. And then the money goes into the federal government and everybody is richer. Um, But, uh, you know, we we live in a time in which the one party in the country is claiming that uh, people of means in the United States are not paying their fair share. And I'm not going to call that evil because it's rank politics, but it is a massive deception. They know better. I mean, they, they know better only in the sense that they know they they can read the same things I read. Um but it's because they philosophically believe that there is no such thing as income, earned income by anybody. Uh, that government sort of is owed a hundred percent of the money, and that the issue is, what are they going to allow you to keep? How much of it can they allow you to keep? Um, but if we're if we're in a world in which one party is actually going to retail and constantly retail the idea that the federal government can get bigger and spend more and give away more and all of that without any consequences or any effect of its crowding the market and crowding its own uh, population for this money, that there are no downside effects uh, because it's all going to be paid by somebody else. This is just a scam. This is an intellectual. We've been through the last two years With this massive inflationary spiral that is ongoing, I mean, the growth has sort of stopped, but we've kind of hit the sweet spot of about 6.2%, where we're apparently going to stay. And the Fed is now talking about, Jerry Powell, uh, Jay Powell said yesterday that, you know, expect higher rate increases than we were signaling we were going to do like last, you know, a couple of months ago, because inflation isn't going anywhere. And where did inflation come, it came from the fact that the federal government spent four to six trillion dollars, or, you know, authorized the spending of four to six point trillion dollars and crowded I'm- out.
2: And it's important to note that for the people, the, the vast number of people on the lower on the income scale who don't even many of whom don't even pay income taxes, inflation is what affects their daily budgets right. far more than whether or not a billionaire is paying right. his or her fair share. And that's that's right. the frustrating part about how a lot of this discussion goes in the same way that that, you know, the the other thing that Biden op ed triggered in me was the reminder that, you know, no one's ever, no Democrat has ever seen a projected savings from a federal program that they haven't already spent in their mind twice over. And that's what he's doing. Like he's spent a lot of the projected savings to argue for this for all the green policies and stuff. And it and it strikes me that I mean, smart Republicans will not get into the mud on the details of these projects, programs, because, you know, as Matt and I were saying, they are also culpable here in terms of failing to reform. But on the the kind of philosophical principle here on the Democratic side, and Biden is is the perfect avatar for this, it's just like the the, uh, debt transfer that he wants for student loans, right? Not a student loan payoff, because there are people who will pay for that and they are not college graduates. It's working people who will end up paying the price for that debt transfer. So there's a lot of effort on the part of the Democratic Party, which is becoming more educated, more elite more white, to want the kinds of policies that benefit their voters while proclaiming that everything they do is for the good of all or for the particularly for the good of working people, when in fact, a lot of what they do, as you say, John, with inflation and whatnot, harms those very voters. So it's pointing that out, that kind of hypocrisy that so much is driven by their own elite sensibility about how the economy works or how it should work and how the government, the role the government should play. That is where I think they are quite vulnerable if somebody's willing to point that out. I, but I also think oh, it,
3: it, yeah. it's particularly the lie about um, the rich and taxes, um, which Biden repeats almost every day. I mean, he, he he says, you know, why should billionaires pay less in taxes than a school teacher or, you know, whatever job he pulls out? I, I do think this is the way it's done now is something a little worse than rank politics, because um, there is not even an expectation that you have to show your work here that 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 you'll be, you know, sort of challenged and Then you can come up with with funny math that can then be debunked. But that doesn't even happen. You know, um, you can just say it again and again and floated. Well, it. it, it's not unlike when Biden uh, was in Selma and he said, you know, uh, Republicans don't want to teach uh, don't want to teach your kids uh, the history of uh, slavery, you know, total lie. Uh, you don't have you You do. You will not be called out. Uh, you will not have to say w- how you arrived at that uh, uh, conclusion, how you arrived at that claim. And this is, you know, like so much else. It's a kind of a response to Trump because the idea is, well, look what he, what he got away with lying every day. So we're 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 not gonna we're not gonna you know meaning the press we're not we're not gonna challenge Biden on any yeah, of this. Yeah,
1: I mean Biden is a practiced and effective demagogue. He's been doing this for half a century, so <laughs> he knows he knows his lines. The question is always how do Republicans respond to these uh, attacks, right? And this is what kind of worries me. It used to be that the Republican response to our uh, economic and budgetary situation was as John suggested, uh, broad-based growth fueled by tax inc- cuts, right? That was the answer of the Republican Party beginning with the Reagan tax cut in 1980. Uh, the, one of the theorists of the supply-side economic theory, uh, a kind of a crank named Jude Winisky, uh, when he was coming up with supply-side economics in collaboration with Art Laffer and Robert Mundell of Columbia, uh, talked about the two Santa Claus theory, which was basically in American politics, the democratic party with Santa Claus, they were going to give everything presents to the American <laughs> people. Right. And you can see that with Biden uh, uh, here, he's going to get, provide Medicare. He's going to provide social security. He's providing um, uh, green jobs. He's going to uh, give more money to teachers. And Wienerski was always saying that the republican party needed to be santa claus too and for the republican santa clauses they would give tax cuts broad across the board tax cuts that would uh, increase the standard of living for all americans i'm looking for santa claus past couple of days i'm looking for santa claus on the republican party i don't really see him Uh, i see i see the grinch uh the grinch is coming around and he's going to slash 85 percent of the discretionary spending. Um I see kind of Natcon Santas. They're more like Krampus maybe. Uh and they're saying they're going to give free birth. That's their new yeah. that's the new thing. Free birth. We're going to pay for your birth.
2: I just hear free bird when you say that, but yeah, yeah free birth.
1: <laughs> that's my my act. Free birth. Yeah. And make um, birth free. Make birth free. That's what they're going to give away. Uh, And I'm just kind of standing, sitting back here and saying, oh, where was the where was the kind of classic Reaganite appeal to the uh, aspiring uh, uh, people, you know, upwardly mobile Americans, which used to be tax cuts? And I agree that tax cuts probably don't have the same pizzazz as they did 40 years ago. But I don't think free birth is going to cut it. Well, look, they don't have the
0: same pizzazz because, here's what happened, they worked in the sense that over 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 the course of 20 years, from 82 to 2002, the tax burden on lower-income Americans at the federal level was reduced very close to zero, That not, uh, the income tax burden. Because, of course, the payroll taxes, that's Medicare uh, and Social Security, those are paid by everybody if they have... A salary, and uh, and so it can't have the same oomph, because when the tax cutting period really began in the eighties, Americans at all levels were over were were significantly overtaxed, and they are they are not overtaxed anymore. Uh, you could say that the tax system uh, is does not properly incentivize you know entrepreneurship or or creation or whatever there's all kinds of things you can say that were sort of the fuel behind the Trump tax cuts in 2017 but those were changes at the margins there isn't that much you can do with the federal tax code oddly enough the only thing you could really do with the federal tax code that would reduce tax burdens would be to go at the payroll tax and no one's going to go at the payroll tax because medicare and social security are close to insolvent as it is let me just read you one other part of the of the Biden op-ed because I think this is this is important in terms of Biden showing his work, as Abe would put it. When Medicare was passed, which was 1965, the wealthiest one percent of Americans didn't have more than five times the wealth of the bottom 50 percent combined, and it only makes sense that some adjustments be made to reflect that reality today. Let's ask them to pay their fair share so that the millions of workers who helped them build that wealth can retire with dignity and the Medicare they paid into. Now, let's unpack this a little bit. First of all, yes, the wealthiest 1% of Americans didn't have more than five times the wealth of the bottom 50% combined in 1965. And yet, the wealthiest 1% of Americans were not paying 50% of the entire federal tax burden annually. So in that sense, they're paying their fair share. They're paying... <laughs> They're paying 50 times their number in terms of the population. And so I think that counts as a fair share, unless you think that they should be paying 100%, in which case they will never pay their fair share. Uh, Secondly, in 1993, something big happened. Medicare, like Social Security, was capped. Uh, I don't know what the Social Security cap is now. But it was I don't know eighty three thousand dollars a year or something. In other words, you pay into Social Security seven percent of your income, and then when you hit I think eighty three thousand, well, maybe it's I think now it over might be 100. one I think maybe one twenty now. Okay, now it's over. Okay, now it's one hundred and twenty thousand. When you hit that, you stop paying into Social Security. There is a cap on Social Security. There is no cap on Medicare. So if you make a no no except for David Zaslav of Warner Brothers Discovery, nobody makes $200 million a year in salary. But if you're David Zaslav, you're paying 7% on every dollar of salary you make into the Medicare trust fund, up to $200 million. So in that sense, the rich have been paying their fair share for 30 years since the Medicare cap was lifted. And Biden is fine. No, no but they don't, need to be, they don't need to be treated nicely by Joe Biden. We can stipulate that Americans have been good to them and they're wonder, you know, and they, they, they you know, so they can deal with it. They can, they can cope with it and they'll pay their, they'll pay what they pay. But this is just intellectually astoundingly dishonest because he's also saying we need to secure their dignity. And the Medicare they paid into, yeah, they paid into Medicare, and they're going to take out 20 times what they paid into Medicare, given what life expectancy is now and the fact that people retire at 65 and all of that. So they put in a certain amount of money that will be eaten up really, really quickly and who is making up. First of all, the rich aren't making up that deficit because the Medicare trust fund is about to be exhausted. But if anybody is making it up, it's already the people that Biden is saying aren't paying their fair share to begin with. So that's that's, you know, this is where populism starts making you crazy, no matter which way you turn, because it's always this idea, whether it's left populism or right populism, that somebody who isn't screwing you is screwing you And. That, you know, certain things that are immutable facts of human nature, like some people have more and some people have less, and some people are, you know, is is something that needs to be corrected by massive interventions.
3: Well, I mean, Uh, it's like, uh, I think populism, you know, at its heart is very similar to socialism in that it's ultimately about leveling, you know, uh, about imposing a uh, sort of you know uh, a level playing field and it it's uh, it's like socialism in that sense and of course it, it can be overtly socialist but in in that um it's never really enough until you get there there's always more to to carve off of the other guys sums
0: and you know and and as as uh, as Jonah Goldberg our friend says in his book Suicide of the West and others, Deidre McCluskey and others have said, the whole point about the system that we have that does not so easily surrender to that kind of leveling or that kind of ideas is unnatural. Like that idea, it's not fair that he has so I can go take what he has and I'll have it, is that's the deepest... Part of human nature, you know, civilization erects barriers and blocks to that impulse, which is the playground impulse of a two-year-old, you know, that kid has a has a shovel. I I don't have a shovel I want it. I'll just go take his shovel, right? You have to sort of you have to impose unnatural uh, you know, uh, b- blocks and defenses against that 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 impulse. And part of our political system has always been, trying to deal with people who push that button and appeal to that very basic human instinct and whether it can be resisted. Uh, Because sometimes also it's the proper instinct. You know, sometimes there is a... Like if government comes to take your property, maybe you have a reason
1: to resist it as opposed to the... Whatever. Anyway. um, I think think the the point is that most of our spending is driven by the entitlement programs. The entitlement programs themselves are um, absurdly financed because they were constructed with these dedicated payroll taxes that gave gave working people the illusion that they were paying into a system and then would receive back what they paid plus, you know, um, growth uh, to take care of them in old age. In fact, uh, that's, Not what happened when when America had many workers in the initial decades of these programs, the revenues collected by these payroll taxes actually funded a lot of the rest of the government. Now, as our working age population sinks, it's other revenues that are funding these programs, and yet people still believe that they paid into the system and deserve something back. This is this is why during the Tea Party decade. Uh, we had those protests where the protesters would hold up the sign saying, keep your hands off my Medicare, right? because they felt that they had they deserved the benefit after paying this payroll tax. What? So this system is, is not well designed, and it's going to end up leading to some type of crisis. We don't know when. Um, we've been very good, I think, at kicking the ball down the road simply because the American economy is so fantastic at generating prosperity and innovation but it will happen and so the the second point that i think yeah biden says
0: it'll happen in 2028 right biden, right it's not bad he says five right. years right
1: right it happens in five years so okay this is going to happen in five years so the second point is that we used to have two parties divided on this question of the entitlement state right the democratic party was well, they created the, the entitlement state, and so they're invested in it. They want to protect it and preserve it. That, that's been the case for almost a century. The Republicans have always had kind of a schizophrenic relationship to it, but basically, with beginning with Reagan and the conservative takeover of the Republican Party, the Republican Party was a forthright in saying that these problems need to be addressed. George W Bush grasped the third rail of entitlement politics when he had his social security proposal Paul Ryan uh after 2009 in the financial crisis grasped the other uh a third rail of medicare reform and both of them were were electrocuted <laughs> because their plans ran up against uh political resistance and what surprises me is just the uh the kind of the um, uh, the the ease with which the Republicans have given up, right? You know, Nancy Pelosi didn't give up on universal health care. Like they've been, they were trying for that since look, Harry Truman, and look, they they eventually got it. But the Republicans are just like, oh, okay, well, I guess it's too hard. We're not going to do it anymore. Okay, look,
0: it's not that there are simple fixes. Social Security there is a simple fix that that was for a long time. And and we still don't talk about it now. Was thought to be too difficult to sell, right? Which is, Social Security was incepted by by Otto von Bismarck in the uh, in the eight nineteenth century in Germany. He set Social Security at the age of sixty five as a as a lifelong pension for all workers, because life expectancy in Germany was sixty three. So he was handing off a benefit to people that they were most of them <laughs> or at least half of them if that's the average weren't going to get and he was going to get credit for it and fine well we now have a life expectancy except for the covid dip that you know approaches 80 um and uh and we have removed in many cases the mandatory retirement age of 65 from a lot of from states and localities and all this and yet you can still start collecting Social Security at 62, as I'm now well aware, because I'm about to hit 62. you can start you can start d- doing things with your retirement money, both private and public. Um, salvation of Social Security is raising the retirement age of social Security. There was a point at which if you raised it to 67 from 65, you would have saved Social Security in perpetuity, but that was 20 years ago. I don't know what it is now. And that's going to happen. At some point, that will happen. It's not happening yet. Medicare is, of course, a much more fiendishly complicated thing because spending on life preservation goes up the older that you get. And so... uh, you know this is a real issue because there are so many interventions that can be practiced in so many different ways, from drugs to surgeries to hip replacements, stuff like that. That all is really expensive, and we don't ration care. So either we're going to have to ration care, or we're going to have to <laughs> we're going to have to fund stuff more, or there is going to be some kind of nationalization of the healthcare system, which is what Obamacare was intended to inaugurate in which case we will end up with ration care because that's what a national health care system does but in the republican case it was the fear of touching the retirement age that essentially ended that part of the let's take this seriously because that 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 was the solution there was there is no other need for a solution if you just if you if you if you expand retirement age so that it more closely approximates when people actually retire and not so you can supply them with a double income for a couple of, you know, for five or six years while they continue to work full-time. This is nuts. And, and, yeah, Republicans gave up, and there's now this just unbelievable dishonesty because they decided, look, we're not going to be the ones to say we're taking this candy away from you or be Santa Claus. Like, we're not the one who is not going to put stuff in your stocking but they don't but they can't do it as well as the democrats can cuz they don't have they don't have the same built-in villain unless you're a an natcon and now you've essentially become a socialist who hates all rich people and capitalism and everything and is essentially just a socialist
1: and well hopefully the free birth will lead to more babies who can fund these entitlement programs <laughs> well into the future
0: yeah, well, by the way, that's the other solution, right? That's the other comic solution that the Republicans, the the, the buzz saw that they that they've they wandered into, which is like, you want to support, you want to have people who come into the country to support our our social welfare programs, you import them in the form of immigration, in the form of a new workforce, in the form of young people who come in and do the jobs that you won't do. Da 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 da. da right, and now the Republican Party is now and forever going to be for you know barriers to to that all over the place and so uh as our birth rate declines and we don't have replacement workers and all of that then that's the other question that Japan is now we just read
2: they will disappear at the their prime minister rate, of Japan yes.
0: said they the this country will disappear so there is one solution to the country disappearing in Japan right which is to they have very open, restrictive immigration policies open their immigration yes. and 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 have the country saved by people who come from outside and that is culturally just an unbelievably bitter pill for them to swallow and it's less a bitter pill for us but it's certainly becoming a more bitter pill as time goes on now talking about growth talking about natural growth and things that uh, things that grow let's talk about fast growing trees as spring approaches Because you can breathe some life into your own backyard with fastgrowingtrees.com this spring. From shade to fresh fruit to privacy and natural beauty, let fastgrowingtrees.com help you plant your dream garden with their expert advice and fast, reliable shipping. They curate thousands of easy-to-grow plant, shrub, and tree varieties for your unique climate. Meyer lemons to evergreens to everything in between. No more waiting in long lines and hauling heavy plants around from a garden store. They got customized recommendations based on your specific needs, and they got plant experts always available to help keep your plants growing healthy through the season and beyond online. So with FastGrowingTrees.com, you order online and your plants arrive at your door in just a few days. Join over 1.5 million happy Fast Growing Trees customers. They take advantage of that Fast Growing Trees 30-day live and thrive guarantee, which which means you know everything will look great fresh out of the box. Go to FastGrowingTrees.com slash commentary now to get 15% off your entire order. That's 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com slash commentary. Uh, So uh, every week, it appears, we're going to get a bonanza of information coming out of this lawsuit, the defamation lawsuit from Dominion Voting Systems against the Fox News Channel and its conduct after the uh, election in November 2020 and the credence uh, that people on the Fox News Channel gave to the stolen election theory. And a lot of the stolen election theory rests on the idea that Dominion Voting Systems and Smartmatic, another voting machine company that has also sued Fox for slander and defamation. And that's another suit that's coming up behind this suit. Um, If you think the election was stolen, by definition, you think that something was done at voting machines, if not in Georgia, where it might've been stolen in the Fulton County arena, then certainly in Arizona and Michigan and other places where, where machines were supposedly doing, doing uh, bad things. Um, so we have, uh, Fox, the new, the new depositions and texts and stuff that have been released show, uh, cynicism, unbelievable cynicism on the part of Tucker Carlson and others. They hate Trump. They know Sidney Powell's crazy. Da 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 And uh, to uh, Tucker actually had Sidney Powell on and kind of exposed her craziness, uh, two weeks after the election. So, uh, so, and yet, He continues and said last night, apparently, or the night before last, that the election was stolen as part of his perorations on the material that he saw relating to the January 6th conduct inside the Capitol. Um, So, Christine, do you look at this and say... Dominion better back up a, you know, better have a, a big truck to back up to 1211 Avenue of the America's the home of the Fox News Channel because a lot of money is going to be rolled out to them in wheelbarrows to put into this, you know, into this big truck uh $1.6 billion suit. Or is the Dominion is the Fox argument, which is A, they were just covering a story, and B, people are allowed to have an opinion, and that's okay, uh, gonna carry the day.
2: Well, both of those things are true but in this case uh it, with defamation if you knowingly defame someone or in this case a company uh with with by claiming things that you know to be untrue that are da- but are nevertheless meant to damage the reputation then i th- think they have a pretty strong case and they should start renting a fleet of trucks. uh Fox News would be wise to just settle. I mean this is not something that I think makes them look good. I mean what it, it it's it's excellent for the public in terms of transparency about what some of their highest paid and most popular personalities really think. The the uh the, the kinds of things that we're learning from these emails and text messages, though not surprising if you see these folks as entertainment, should be sort of shocking to loyal Fox News viewers who get their new who think they're getting actually unfiltered uh, news from from people like Tucker Carlson. I mean, if you see him as an entertainer, he's he's doing his, his shtick, but. Um, he's lying and he's lying in the most cynical way possible because he himself claims in private to to others uh, who he works with that he doesn't believe any of it, that he doesn't doesn't like Trump, all this stuff. So um, I actually think it is fairly defa- it's defamatory. I'm not a lawyer. So and and I'm not in the courtroom. But if you are actively seeking to undermine the reputation of a person or a business, knowing that the information you're spreading is false and, and uh, incorrect and likely to do harm, then you've defamed them. <laughs> Seems pretty. There simple.
3: was one. There was one revelation that was shocking to me. I, I don't know uh, how it relates necessarily directly to the uh, Dominion suit. Um, but, yeah, of course, we've, you know, we've you know known who, who Tucker Carlson is and what he does. Um, but for years, uh, even through the, all through the Trump years, I had defended special report uh, uh, with Brett Baer, uh, you know, sort of saying it is unlike. A lot of the other things you will see uh, on the network. It's a great straight news show. Um, And then there's this revelation that that Brett Baer is on record having sent in an an internal uh, message of some sort saying, I think we should put Arizona back in the Trump column uh, because we're losing viewers here. Which to me is kind of the end of your credibility entirely. Entirely.
0: Matt let me let me let me pot, let me let me play Devil's advocate and say, Fox is a business. It is there to serve the needs and wants and desires of its audience, and that audience uh has a specific point of view. and uh, yeah, they're supposed to report without fear of favor, fair amounts, all that, but basically, uh, they hit a moment of crisis. Uh, their market was being disrupted. The possibility that they were going to lose the fealty of their customers was at issue. And in the end, that's what it's there for. It's not there to provide for the public interest and to be a source of information. It's there to serve its audience uh, and when you when you uh, provide good customer service, in other words, and that is what Brett Baer was just trying to do. He was saying, I'm getting a lot of crap. I'm getting a lot of email. I'm really feeling the heat and the pressure, and I'm worried that we're going to lose our audience. And we, we, if we just put Arizona back in the Trump column, our audience would be happy, and therefore we would be doing what we were supposed to do. And that is, I think, essentially what the the overarching argument of the Fox News channel is, is, look... We're a business. we're in this business. we didn't violate the New York Times v Sullivan rules on slander and libel because there was no malice, aforethought. forethought. We didn't weren't there. weren't doing this to destroy Dominion voting systems. We were just throwing whatever we could up to see what works to keep our audience our audience,
1: yeah, I mean, I, I think the legal issues are are fairly complicated. It's a you know, um it's it actually reminds me a lot of the whole section two thirty debate. With social media platforms, that is, you know, is Facebook responsible for the content it carries, right? I mean, in this sense, uh, Fox is saying that they're covering the story. Sidney Powell had these lunatic theories, you know, um, they were providing her a platform. That doesn't necessarily mean that they were intentionally trying to harm uh, Dominion uh, voting machines' reputation. That's the argument, anyway. I don't know how it's going to play out. I think the role of the audience is very important here. Fox News was. Uh, channel was created in 1996 by Rupert Murdoch and Roger Ailes. And Roger Ailes uh, was in charge of Fox News for 20 years. He ran the audience. The audience didn't run him. He controlled every aspect of that channel. And when someone went too far, like, say, Glenn Beck in the five o'clock hour uh, at the early years of the Obama administration, where Beck took a hard turn toward conspiracy theories uh Al sacked him because uh sacked had, him and he
0: had the he had the number one show on cable yeah, television exactly. and
1: Ailes sacked him because right. he
0: saw into the future right he, the liability that this was going to pose
1: roger you know so the most responsible figure was roger hales who of course had a very troubled personal life in 2016, because of that troubled personal life, Ailes was defenestrated. And at that point on, the audience ran Fox News.
0: Well, okay, so, so let, let's talk about that because that's what I'm saying. Shouldn't the audience run Fox? I mean, if if somebody if somebody said to you, I, yeah. No, no, no. I, I'm not, I'm honestly not this is not an argument. I'm just proposing right. this as a right. theory. If you said that CBS in its primetime lineup. The audience runs CBS. What does that mean? That means what the CBS audience wants is an NCIS in Podunk, an NCIS set in in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, a CSI in Jackson, Mississippi. Like, that's what they want. They want an old person's cop show, and CBS provides them with 35 of them every well well, i think when one starts to fade they put in another one it's like if you lose jesse what you know you get this one you put in jesse waters just throw a csi with some schmuck in it and it'll get nine million viewers and
1: cbs is run by its audience well the better analogy may be like the nbc nightly news where you know the final block is your health today and it talks about the latest advancements and you know um Blood pressure medicine and Lipitor, right? I mean, so, but it's still obeying the canons of journalism. I mean, I think there's a difference between saying, "Yeah, I want to be attentive to my audience. Uh, I want to um, program material that it that it um, that will appeal to it," and, on the other hand, saying, "Well, w- I'm going to be as completely irresponsible." As possible because i am afraid of losing this audience to networks and channels and websites that have no fealty to any canons of journalism i think that's the dilemma and fear there's fear has been the dominant psychological attitude of the trump years republicans are afraid of trump voters fox was afraid of of its audience it was tired of having to defend the truth what does that say about the state of american politics and society that a minority a minority of the country is holding one of the two main political parties and its major media outlet hostage it doesn't say anything good. If, if, no, if
2: you're asking
0: me whether whether you can see any positive there, the only positive you can see there, I guess, is that um okay, now we get into the get back to my you know drinking game, Plato's Cave analogy. So I'm gonna make the Plato's Cave analogy, which is was Fox responding to something real? was the threat posed by Newsmax and One America and you know Gateway Pundit and stuff like that for its audience having spent 25 years building itself into what was a slogan that became the truth which is that it was the most powerful name in news it was the it was the most effectively branded work of in, in, in the entire news business, the Fox News Channel, that it was the conservative news channel in the United States, so however you want to define that. Um, and that they had no confidence that that brand was strong enough to survive them saying, look, Trump lost. They had no confidence whatsoever that the brand was strong enough. I don't, maybe they're right. You know, look, Jeff Flake was a conservative and unimpeachable standing in 2015, and by 2018, he had to retire rather than run for re-election in Arizona, having been censured by his own party, as was the Republican candidate for president in 2008, censured by his own local party. Things moved very fast. The grassroots turned on, you know, on the institutions. And maybe they were overly responsive to their audience because the audience would have forgiven them. Or maybe they weren't. Maybe they were right. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't defame Dominion. Again, I think this argument is the one that they would have to make in public, not just we didn't, you know, we, which is we didn't care about Dominion. We had no hostility toward Dominion. We had nothing. We were just trying to say the things that would make sure that we wouldn't lose our audience. And so we had no malice aforethought about Dominion. Did we speak untruths about Dominion? Maybe. Did we have people on who said untruths about Dominion? Maybe. Then Dominion would have to come on air or or come into the courtroom and say, if you are propounding the election was stolen theory, the root of that theory is... That Dominion voting system stole the election. Even if you're not saying it, there is no way the election was stolen without us having had to have been one of the thieves. And therefore, every time you give credibility or credence to a stolen election theory, you are defaming Dominion and Smartmatic. I don't know if that's where they're going to go. I don't understand how you do, you know, that kind of implicit arguing. It's true dominion will never be hired in another republican state or municipality its business has been wildly impeded real harm has been done to it so i think in that sense they have a tort they can claim that their business was harmed because of the promulgation of a false theory
1: but i don't know i mean i, I would just um I think one, one change uh, that's important to note is, you know, while you were, during the period you're describing, John, when Fox was establishing itself as the most powerful name in news, its slogan was fair and balanced. That was the whole idea behind Fox when it was created in the 1990s. It was fair and balanced. It was going to provide the other side of the story that the liberal media just leaves out because of its priors. And, you know, Charles Krauthammer used to joke that, you know, Ailes and Murdoch discovered a niche market, half of the American yeah, people, right? right? And that was its appeal. Now, in 2020, after the election, you know, Fox News adopted a new slogan standing up for what's right. Fair and balanced is in the rearview mirror. And maybe uh, conceptually, a lot of us haven't caught up with that, right? Um, and we have to understand what the network is today and appreciate it or not on its own terms. And my last thought on this is um, all of these texts that are coming that, you know, um, that are in the New York Times, that are in the playbook showing the uh, hypocrisy and cynicism of many of the key figures in Fox News, uh, I don't think they're penetrating a wider audience. In conversations I've been having with people on the center-right who are not politicos, Um, They're not even aware that this material is coming out. For them, Fox is what it has always been, which is uh, basically a trusted source of information and a mirror to their own um, concerns, you know. And so for people who might be operating under the illusion that this lawsuit would force changes to the Fox News channel, um, I seriously doubt that here's my final thought experiment there's
0: and it's a thought experiment so there's no way to answer it so uh our our our, our friend um my my old friend matt's call our colleague at the weekly standard charles krauthammer uh passed away in 2017 maybe 2018 2018, yeah. 2018 but he was off the air uh because of his illness uh in
1: a year before 2017 yeah. august 2017
0: right and Charles was the hero of the Fox News channel. Like Charles was sort of like the sage, uh, you know, the Buddha, uh, treated with unbelievable respect across the entire channel. Um uh, Roger made him into this um sort of like heightened, I wouldn't call him a gut, like almost like the prophet.
1: An oracle.
0: An oracle, thank you. Right would charles be on brett bear's show today assuming that charles didn't swallow the trump kool-aid which i think would have been impossible for him to do that wasn't his that what he he you know his his sense of irony would would not have allowed him there and i think he would have been as appalled uh by trump as 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 we we were uh, though also amused by him in a fundamentally ironical sense um, but uh, this guy who was who was the, you know, who was the most respected presence, if I assume he would have been basically um, uh, sidelined, uh, despite his uh, position that he was so well loved that he you know, publishes basically a book of columns and it sells two million copies in hardcover, um,
1: because of his position on 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 Fox. I mean, and Charles uh, was very clear uh, in an interview, I think, in 2017 uh, with Rich Lowry at a National Review Ideas Summit. Uh, Rich asked Charles, you know, has Trump changed you? Has he changed your mind about uh, about the issues? And uh, Krauthammer responded, no. And so he did go into the Trump administration for its first seven months saying that he was going to call balls and strikes and he was, you know, he would have his drawl sense of humor um but I recall uh vividly um one of his final appearances on the special report program in the aftermath of the Charlottesville riot and Trump's reaction to it uh, where um Laura Ingram was ferocious in her attack on Charles uh, because of his criticisms of Trump's response and and fascinatingly she targeted I was always thought this was revealing she targeted Charles's Academic credentials, you know, master's in philosophy from Oxford, undergraduate degree at McGill, of course, the um, graduate of Harvard Medical School and the chief resident at Massachusetts General. She went after that. And because that was a sign that he was part of the elite. Yeah. And you can't trust anyone with a, with a graduate degree anymore in the Trump world. And so I think that was definitely said, a sign. Said,
0: said the said the Dartmouth. Oh, I was going to say yeah. the Dartmouth ground. Yeah, yeah. Clark.
1: exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was, I think, a direction of where things were headed. And, um, you know, I, I actually saw him uh, at Fox uh, right before his surgery in uh, August 2017. He was in good spirits, um, but we will never know how he would have responded to uh, what lay ahead. But I
0: think we know that no matter who you were, no matter where you were, if you did not drink the Kool Aid, you were tagged for not drinking the Kool Aid, and uh, you were better off being being a functional illiterate uh, with a low IQ like Jesse Waters than being than being uh, Charles Crowdhammer at some point, uh, you know, after 2019, and that you know that that is what the, that is who that is who the channel prefers as its voice and so i you know i just don't see any way that 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 that, that would have been uh, sustainable but it's uh, just just a just a just a thought experiment anyway and that with that thought experiment we will conclude our proceedings today and be back tomorrow so for uh, matt christine and Abum john Podhoritz, keep the candle burning